Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 127 of the Naturally Nourished podcast. Today we are covering a topic that we've been getting tons and tons of questions about, especially with the recent surge of keto carnivore and all of the talk we've been hearing about Dr. Gundry and his book, The Plant Paradox. So without giving too much away, we've decided to call today's episode In Defense of Vegetables. And we'll be covering both the pros and cons of eating plants from their main properties to their nutrient density and bioavailability, and hopefully giving a pretty balanced view of this topic that is getting quite controversial in some of the spheres that we're in. Yes. So the name in defense of vegetables, like Becky said, kind of gives away our stance in the whole matter. Both of us love vegetables in the sense of both flavor as well as, like Becky said, supportive antioxidants and compounds that drive detoxification and so forth. But at the other end of the spectrum, we are able to acknowledge and note that nutrient density is often significantly higher in animal-based products. We do talk about this a little bit in actually Becky's first episode of the Naturally Nourished podcast (laughs) with me. Uh, It's episode 42, and we're both talking about our transition from vegan to omnivore. So definitely check that out if you're interested in it. And I would say, you know, we've never taken the pendulum swing so far on the other end of the spectrum, like recently... I have been speaking out about the things to consider when we're going kind of all or nothing mindset on healing properties of vegetables and how it's so important instead of having a mono focus to provide a wide web of nutrient density, eat with the seasons and prepare vegetables in such a way that reduces their anti-nutrients and aids in the absorption and utilization of the nutrients that that plant provides us. So one area of kind of hot topic, which has ruffled quite some feathers, (laughs) has been when I came out, I did my first Instagram live, uh, or no, Instagram TV, I guess it's called, um, on why celery juice is not a miracle drink. And I talked about how, you know, celery juice contains two compounds of concern. One is called furocoumarins, and furocoumarins block phase one of detoxification. So, you know, this actually reduces the activation of toxins in our liver. So all of you listeners should be quite familiar with how detox works. And if not, we have tons of episodes to teach you more about it. But a lot of the benefits that people are getting with like, for instance, mast cell disease or dealing with dermatological conditions, they're getting benefits by drinking high amounts of celery juice, like 16 ounces a day, because that's creating a damning effect of their detox. So What probably was happening was that individual was lacking phase two excretion 
enzyme support. And so they were getting a high activation of toxins, but not excreting. So they were getting dermatological flares, like the toxins trying to come out through their skin or immune mediated flares, like inflammation, right? We see a lot of cases of fibromyalgia and I mentioned uh, the mast cell conditions. Well, blocking the activation is a band-aid on a volcano, right? You're, you're just backlagging up the toxins so you're not getting the expression of them. So that's actually a concern. Celery juice actually inhibits detoxification. It does not support it. Um, so I really have an issue when people are using rhetoric like it slews toxins from your liver when actually it inhibits the primary cytochrome P450 enzyme of detox in the liver. <laughs> sure. And that's just a known, you know, fact or a known process that like, you know, people could find via a Google search, right? <laughs> yeah, in theory. I mean, right. And there's actually a study that looked at rats drinking parsley and celery juice, and there was an interference in medication um, because the medication metabolism was blocked by that blocking of cytochrome. Mm-hmm. P450. So similar and, to like with grapefruit juice exactly. that we often hear. Yep. Yep. Cool. It's okay. the grapefruit um, syndrome, exactly, yep. or the grapefruit juice effect, as it's kind of termed. And so, you know, I, I just want to kind of enter and welcome you into this episode, knowing that I am a big proponent of balanced eating. As you guys know, food as medicine and whole food ingredients. And I am not fearful of celery. I use celery in a mirepoix, which is, you know, a classic base of bone broth, like your celery, carrots, onions. I might use celery in a tuna salad with, you know, an avocado-based mayo and olives chopped in it. And I know that there's benefits of celery as well. Like it provides us a really great natural electrolyte stabilizer. So great thing for maybe keto flu. Um, Celery also provides us a good amount of soluble fiber and pectin, which can help in that sense more as a binding for detox. But copious amounts of this kind of monofocused of one food being a superfood, I'm not going to subscribe to. And I'm always going to look when I'm recommending things, what is the mechanism of action and how can we ensure that we have a first do no harm influence? Because another thing we've seen with the high consumption of celery juice is another plant compound called uh, sorreline. And we've seen that that can sensitize skin to the harmful effects of UV rays in the sunlight. And like how many on Instagram beach babes <laughs> are sucking mm-hmm. down their celery juice on the way to the beach? So it's just kind of, to me, a little bit ironic. And we want to be mindful that no one superfood is going to be an end-all be-all. And also what we'll talk about as we get into anti-nutrients and individualized food as medicine approach, someone's superfood can be someone else's kryptonite. Exactly. And I can't believe how much um, controversy the whole celery juice debate stirred up on our Instagram. It was pretty, pretty wild and got a little ugly, but Hey, I mean, we're just here to provide you guys with information. It's up to you what you do with it. Right. Um, So without further ado, let's start off with the positives of plants and nutrients specifically found in our vegetables. Yes. So you know, we can go through the color spectrum and that's where you'll hear a very broad recommendation of like eat the rainbow to get biodiversity uh, because we do associate a lot of color with varied forms of antioxidants. For instance, carotenoids we think of in the orange colored uh, vegetables like sweet potato, carrots. Uh, We know that there's actually over 300 different carotenoids. So although we focus on beta carotene, if we're using a supplement form, we're 
we're always going to have a mixed carotenoid blend from a whole food form. And when you're eating it in the whole food, you're going to get that bioactive blend. Um, And actually, carotenoids can really prevent sun damage and protect the skin from oxidative stress as well as um, support vision. So we look at a lot of compounds there. And another vision supporter is lutein. And this is seen in your leafy greens. So if we're talking spinach, kale, chard, collard greens, quercetin is one of my favorites at this time of the year with seasonal pollen changes and um, seasonal allergies. Quercetin is a really fantastic antihistamine, which can be seen in your onions, your garlic, that kind of allium family, as well as apple and citrus. We think of lycopene in tomatoes and even higher expressed in the processed tomatoes, not processed like chemically adulterated, but processed like stewed and canned. Um, so a really clean potential uh, marinara or uh, canned crushed organic tomatoes would have a high amount of that lycopene in there. We think of in the purple pigment, two compounds. We have anthocyanins, which are going to be seen in like your blueberries, your raspberries. Uh, we also see anthocyanin in like red cabbage, right? And then we see resveratrol also in your grapes, your berries. And resveratrol, favorably for my lifestyle, is higher expressed when fermented, like in the form of wine. That's its main redeeming property. And then we see antioxidants coming from botanicals in um, things like your green and white tea, which have high amounts of the EGCG, which have been shown a lot of benefits for body fat burn. Uh, We see that cacao uh, has high amounts of antioxidants, even by weight, said to have the highest antioxidant capacity. And then herbs and spices are great botanical tools, like, of course, turmeric, oregano, uh, rosemary, Pretty much every fresh herb and spice, if organically grown, is going to be a really great way to not only add flavor, but provide a punch of uh, plant-based phytocompounds and antioxidants. Yes, we got pretty deep into this stuff back in episode 117, which was all about antioxidants. So if this spikes your interest, definitely go back and have a listen because that'll go kind of deeper down the rabbit hole on some of these specific antioxidants and phytocompounds found in plants. Yes. And then, you know, beyond the actual antioxidants, which that whole world I think is so important to acknowledge that we know so little about, you know, like I always say when you eat whole foods and you're eating in again, variety, nutritional sciences are just starting to figure some of these things out. So like a lot of those big words I I dropped, like quercetin and what have you, have really just been recently discovered. So I really feel intuitively that there's probably more antioxidant compounds that we've yet to to pinpoint and highlight, but we do know that when we watch cultural trends and intake of certain compounds that there's other benefits. Like for instance, you know, in hot countries, especially in like more third world countries, there's copious amounts of like cayenne, right? And spicy peppers and things like horseradish or wasabi or um, turmeric and ginger. And all of these not only provide anti-inflammatory and antioxidant boost, but a lot of them are antimicrobial. So if they have, you know, unfavorable storage conditions or preparation and it's served in the form of street food, that can actually fight off pathogens, you know? So there's a lot of benefits, I think, non-debatably that we could say with plant-based compounds. And the last two I'll mention as just general tools beyond the antimicrobial potential is fiber, which can support 
The detox in the colon can support the binding influence. Remember, for instance, estrogen. Estrogen is metabolized, yes, in the liver, but also estrogen is detoxed in the colon. So, you know, this is something that we really want to be mindful as well, getting that fiber to bind and detox. And then specific to detox, there's also plant-based compounds like Eindols, um, in Eindol 3 carbonols, for instance, which also tend to support specifically estrogen dominance, but also any endocrine disrupting compound. So this will be found in like your cruciferous vegetables, your Brussels, your cauliflower, your broccoli, your cabbage. And this is where we call them cancer fighters because they also aid in that phase two excretion of detox pathway. Okay, so tons of benefits already, and we'll we'll stop there on the benefits because I think this is something we address, you know, in our food as medicine section of just about every episode. So we'll be talking more about benefits of a balanced approach within this episode for sure. But I want to make sure that we get to kind of breaking down some of the anti nutrients that often yeah. come into question with plants. But first, let's talk about what an anti nutrient actually is. Like, what does that mean? Why do we hear it? Yeah. So this concept of anti-nutrient is essentially the way that a plant defends itself. Okay. And so, you know, plants can't flee from a a predator, right? They're just there. They're rooted into the ground. (laughs) And so they have different anti-nutrients or compounds that basically protect the crop from being completely consumed. Okay. And so what anti-nutrients typically do is create some form of digestive distress, which would put the brakes on the consumption to the, the, the predator, if you will. Okay. So we typically see these in higher concentrated amounts in grains. Um, we're going to break down by name, different forms of anti-nutrients. So I'm not going to open that yet, but we typically find these in grains, beans and legumes as the higher digestive distressors. We also see anti-nutrients though in nuts and seeds. Um, And we'll talk about how we can get around that. And then we're going to see them in really all different plants. Um, And so different alkaloids and worlds um, are going to have bitter compounds that protect the plant and can have an impact beyond the digestive tract, potentially on the neurological system um, and also as an inflammatory component. Okay. And not all anti-nutrients are necessarily a bad thing until we get into, you know, overconsumption, which again, that's like where the celery juice argument comes into play. Yes. And like I said, there are ways that you can mitigate the anti-nutrient effect uh, and anti-nutrients will often be, and this is a really big thing I want to drive home home for you guys. We'll probably say it like three different times in different ways, but anti-nutrients and in general, negative things in the diet will be more distressing when you have a low stomach pH, right? So if your stomach acidity is not optimized and your stomach pH is going to be uh, influenced by stress, right? Um, and so when you, and, and I guess what I mean, a more basic, so technically, right, the, the low numbers mean more acidic, but when your acidity drops in your stomach, um, that's when you're going to be more susceptible to digestive distress or the influence of anti-nutrients. So stress alone will re- will impact your acidity of your stomach. And then also when you don't have ample digestive enzymes. And remember, when you're in a fight or flight, sympathetic stress response, you only make about a quarter of the amount of enzymes that you would if you were in a parasympathetic rest and digest state. So stress 
And, uh, you know, the regulation of your stomach enzymes and pH are going to play a huge component in your tolerance. Got it. And I'm sure we'll dig deeper into that in a little bit, but let's first go a little deeper into a couple of these different categories of anti-nutrients, starting with glycoalkaloids. What are those? (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) glycoalkaloids, so just like there's many particular forms of antioxidants. There are many particular forms of plant-based compounds that are found, you know, in different families of foods. Glycoalkaloids are found predominantly in potatoes and, um, a high concentration of these actually are considered a neurotoxin of sorts. Um, it actually breaks down acetylcholine. Okay. And so acetylcholine is the conductor of our neurotransmitters. So for pests, high consumption of potato can actually cause paralysis and even death. Now, in humans, this is not a huge hit because the cooking process reduces glycoalkaloids significantly. And another anti-nutrient that we see in the nightshade family that's also in potatoes is solanine. And we see that in like the green spots of your potatoes. So I always say when you're cutting your potatoes, you know, if you're going to roast them or, or um, boil them or whatever, um, you'd want to kind of cut out that solanine green. And also cooking in general is going to reduce these glycoalkaloids. They are somewhat anti-inflammatory, okay? And so they, in some sense, have a structural composition similar to glucocorticoids, um, which are steroids, right? So they can have some anti-inflammatory properties that might be favorable, um, but over time could also weaken the immune system and slow our metabolism and have a blood sugar impact. We know that potatoes in nature are already high glycemic index, right? And um, that glucocorticoid component, we know that corticosteroids are going to, with the word gluco in front of it, right, are going to drive blood sugar release. So also concerning on blood sugar management. Um, the other potential positive is that the glucose the glycoalkaloids can kill bacteria and virus. Um, And so we have seen in lab studies that there are some antibacterial and antiviral properties. And in in sense, this is kind of what nature designed this compound for. And there may even be some anti-cancer influence, Um, but but that still is kind of up in, in process of whether it drives apoptosis or basically cellular suicide of dysfunctional cells in the body. Okay. So sounds like some pros and cons <laughs> on this compound. And if you're eating in a naturally nourished way, right, um, you're likely consuming potatoes only if you're carb cycling. And if you're not doing keto, you're probably only consuming these in very small amounts because all of my diet protocols are going to be low glycemic. And I would never encourage raw potato, but watch out if you're doing processed products because a lot of them use potato starch, which would have higher amounts of this concentrated compound. Oh, that's totally true. I didn't even think about that. A lot of the gluten-free products out there do have potato starch in them as a filler. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of these we're going to find kind of that double-edged sword of, you know, in highly concentrated amounts, you know, here are the possible negatives, but there's also some positives. So kind of a a balance of, you know, nature knowing best, if you will. Um, So let's talk a little bit about one of the more known anti-nutrients, phytic acid or phytates. Yeah. I mean, this is one that I learned about back in the day at Bastyr and was pretty mind-blowing to me because I 
went to that naturopathic college as a vegan. <laughs> Again, in episode 42, we'll tell you our stories. <laughs> but um, I didn't know much about phytates and phytic acid until I went there. And it explained a lot of my digestive distress of eating like the like vegan sloppy joes and beans and everything and vital gluten and all these things. So uh, phytates are going to be compounds that are found in whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds. Um, The main concern about phytates is that they bind minerals. So they can bind iron, zinc, manganese, and calcium and slow their absorption. And so, you know, when we are talking in the vegetarian lifestyle, for instance, navy beans are one of the biggest recommended sources of plant-based iron. I'm using air quotes. (laughs) Um, You know, we're not going to be able to really absorb that based on the plant structure of the bean. So, you know, if you're eating a balanced diet, we shouldn't be concerned about this because we're probably consuming the minerals in other common foods. And, you know, that's going to make up for the malabsorption of the nutrient in that particular food. And what we mean is that basically the nutrients that we're stating is in, like I said, that bean are not going to be available because of the structure of that legume, for instance. But if you're getting iron in your steak, your grass-fed steak, right, it's not going to bind that, to be clear, you know, so that I just want kind of listeners to be able to distinguish that. Yep, that makes sense. So, you know, it's it's more of a concern for vegetarians and vegans who are really relying on these phytate foods as their mineral sources because it's going to drive more deficiency patterns. Now, the best things you can do is preparation that includes soaking. And if we're talking about nuts, um, we actually want to sprout them. So this would be soaking like eight to 12 hours. In my real food detox program, we actually give you a table of timeline of different soaking and sprouting and and really dig into this topic deeper. Uh, But if we're talking about legumes and this is something that you enjoy consuming, maybe you're having favorable cardiovascular um, lipid panels by having a half cup of legumes occasionally, you'd want them both soaked as well as pressure cooked um, because that's going to further kind of mechanically break down those cell walls, which will break down that phytic acid. And I also recommend using kombu, which is a sea vegetable, a seaweed that you'll use in your cooking process. Um, You can put that in your Instapot or slow cooker, and that's going to further break down that phytic acid. Yeah. And Eden is a great brand that has beans that are already canned with kombu. So that would be adding, taking a step out of your processing at home. Yep. And again, the double-edged sword here. So phytates have actually shown in research to have some health benefits, which have some anti-inflammatory influence. And there was some lab studies that looked at phytates to help to normalize cell growth and stop proliferation of cancer cells. So again, don't eat these phytate-rich forms of foods as your mineral-dense options. Maybe use them as a tool for fiber and maybe use it as a tool for healthy fats if we're talking about the nuts and seeds. And then, you know, use the preparation techniques to reduce the anti-nutrient as best as possible and eat in the diversity with the animal products so you can really get what your body needs. Okay. And then lectins are another one that I think, you know, are talked about pretty closely in relation with phytates. And I know we'll get more into this shortly because this is kind of Dr. Gundry's big soapbox in the plant paradox is lectins. But what exactly are those? Where do we find them? So lectins are found also high in beans and wheat. um, And they can also, like, like phytates, 
interfere with nutrient absorption. Uh, like phytates, they can also cause bloating, distension, gas, and indigestion. Um, and so that's one of the things that people will notice with like the Eden beans, with the phytates, that that kombu that's used in that process and the canning process of cooking reduces the output of gas. <laughs> so we'll see that also with lectins based on how the food is treated. Um, and the big thing with lectins is that they are able to survive digestion through the GI tract. And that means that basically they aren't broken down or metabolized. So they can actually penetrate cells or of the, of the GI tract or basically drive or perpetuate leaky gut. So it can cause damage to the tender epithelial cells that line our GI tract and can damage their membranes, which then, you know, that's our main surface area for absorption of nutrients. So we can get with that damage to the epithelial lining less nutrient absorption overall. So that would go beyond just interfering with the nutrients absorbed in that food. If you're getting gut damage, you're not going to absorb nutrients in that steak, for instance, right, that I was mentioning earlier of that kind of pairing. Um, and also we can get immunological inflammatory negative influence based on that leaky gut, right? So we can then have, if we have a lot of that damage on our gut lining, we can have autoimmune reactivity, we can have food sensitivities, uh, we can have increased inflammation in the body, and lectins may also interfere with our bacteria flora. So it could drive more of a dysbiotic gut versus a symbiotic gut, so driving that bacteria to work against us. Okay, and I know we got further into both lectins and phytates in our episode back at episode 74, are you still eating gluten? So you can learn more about those particular anti-nutrients. And generally speaking, we're, avoid we're avoiding grains in all of our protocols. We're using legumes occasionally as a carb cycle. So a lot of this stuff is kind of a, a moot point if we're not doing grains right. anyway. Right. Soybean is another one. And yep. you know, the anti-anxiety diet is soy free. And um, we we both keep that out as well. So it, it's, a, it's already kind of navigated, I would say. And that's a part of the focus of gut restoration, of course. Yeah. Um, and then saponins are pretty similar to lectins in the fact that they affect the GI lining or the gut lining. Yeah, and I think of this again in my in my recovering vegan <laughs> mentality is that was always the thing about like soaking quinoa, right? So there was that brand, I think Ancient Harvest brand. Um, I haven't had quinoa in probably four years, goodness. Um, and uh, there that it tastes soapy essentially, right? If you didn't soak it properly, and you had to kind of almost like wash it in your your fine strainer. And so you know, one brand came out that was pre-soaked quinoa back in the day, and that was to reduce the saponin influence. Um, so same thing, it's kind of this like soapy um, influence that also can degrade the gut lining and is actually seen beyond the grains in vegetables as well. Um, and then let's see, what other ones do we want to hit on? Solanine. I, I, solanine is the one when we're talking like AIP, so autoimmune protocol. Um, and this is going to be found in your nightshades. So this is your eggplant, peppers, tomatoes, and um, also potatoes. And um, this can actually be driving like a, a 
foodborne illness or a poisoning toxicity influence on the predator, if you will, where we can see nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, cramping, burning in the throat, headaches, or, or dizziness. But this would be, again, in high amounts of consumption and commonly in the raw. Now, when someone's dealing with inflammatory conditions that are uh, bone, um, I will especially, or joint pain, I will especially have them do a trial run of nightshade free. And that can help, um, especially when you pair that with the abundance of bone broth and things that help to heal the gut to, uh, you know, really reduce that inflammation process. And then they might tolerate moderate amounts of these foods cooked or in, um, you know, smaller amounts, more as an accent versus a feature food. Sure. And that's a big feature of the AIP diet, which we talked about back in Christina Kirp's episode. I'm not remembering the number, but I'll link to it, um, that it is nightshade free. Yes. Yes. Okay. And then what about Oxalates. I know this one comes up a lot with clients, especially those with um, kidney stones or high propensity to forming kidney stones. Or gout. Yep. 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 So um, oxalates um, can be seen in sesame seed is actually a really high level of oxalic acid, Uh, soybeans, black um, and brown varieties of millet, which is interesting because I was just talking to a chef friend yesterday. I feel like millet is like trying to be the new quinoa. I don't know if you've realized that (laughs) or like recognize that. Millet, yeah. Right? Like especially I'm thinking of that that on-trend restaurant um, that like everything's millet. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, it is high in oxalic acid. And so something to be mindful of there. So we would still want to, to go forward with the soaking and sprouting. Um, and definitely if high risk for kidney stone or urinary tract issues like interstitial cystitis, um, spinach, I didn't mention, but that's another high one in the oxalates. So big one to watch out for. Okay. And then one more tannins and we can just be brief on this one, but I know, um, wine is a big source of tannins as well as things like tea. Yes. So tannins are an enzyme inhibitor. So they can actually cause protein deficiency when consumed in high amounts because it inhibits the activation and absorption process. Um, You know, and that's why actually for my high tea drinkers, I'll often say like, don't take your main multi, like our multi-defense with tea. um, And because that's a big one that blocks mineral absorption as well beyond the protein. Um, So, you know, we need enzymes to metabolize our food and, 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 usher nutrients essentially into our cells. Uh, And so when we have these anti-nutrients or tannins, which inhibit enzymes, we can get bloating, diarrhea. I know with um, wine, tannins can also drive headache. Um, And so this is one that we see in like a, uh, those are really the big things I think of. There's plant tannins in, in many plants, but high concentration in your tea and your wine. Okay. Awesome. So I think we hit some of the main anti-nutrients and kind of properties of each. And before we get into the whole plant paradox and kind of where that's all coming from, let's have a quick word from our sponsor for this episode, Bonafide Provisions. Yes. So a perfect fit and segue (laughs) because Bonafide Provisions is the true bone broth company that makes bone broth that is found only in the frozen section. They fro- they freeze their bone broth fresh, so they use zero preservatives or pasteurization, and they use certified organic. It's a certified organic product that only uses all certified organic ingredients and only grass-fed pasture-raised bones, and they make 
real deal bone broth in the sense that they slow simmer the bones and vegetables for 18 to 48 hours. And that's what provides that gelatin and collagen with that oopy goopy delivery to keep gut lining in in intact essentially. So this is going to help to support our leaky gut and make our gut more resilient to be able to get the benefits of plant foods without the harmful effects. Yes. So you'll find that bona fide provisions, when you thaw a bag, it actually gels. So it's got this kind of jiggle factor that tells you it's a really good source of that collagen and gelatin that you're looking for in bone broth when many shelf-stable products that you just kind of pull off the shelf versus freezer aisle are just not going to have that. And they're still allowed to be marketed, unfortunately, as bone broth. Yeah. The the issue is that there's no USDA kind of rules of what's bone broth, right? So we know a lot of the shelf stable stuff is going to be ultra pasteurized. And you can literally tell by just shaking the the box <laughs> that it's it's not gelatinous, right? It's water viscosity. So I recommend that you go over to bonafideprovisions.com and you use the code AllieMillerRD at checkout. And you listeners will get 20% off your first order online um, at bonafideprovisions.com with the code AllieMillerRD. I recommend you stock up, get a bunch of bags so you have them in your freezer, still make your bone broth from scratch because that's a high recommendation and we have tons of resources out there for you as far as recipes. But this is really great to have on hand when you're wanting to saute and deglaze a pan with your vegetables. In fact, what an awesome synergy, right? You can literally add the gut support within your vegetables that might have a little bit of that distress. Um, and it cleans up your pan so you don't have the the browning that you have to scrape off and you get a nice uh, rich flavor profile. Yes. Um, go ahead. And their bone broth is great for sipping in between meals too, or using totally. as a snack blended with something like ghee or coconut oil, and maybe a little bit of turmeric, ginger, pinch of salt. I know we both love doing those like fatty bone broth lattes kind of sort of. <laughs> yeah. And so you can get bona fide provisions at pretty much all naturally gro- natural grocery stores. And they're even getting um, headway into conventional stores like Walmart, Publix, Kroger. But definitely you'll get that 20% off on their website, which is bonafideprovisions.com. Use the code AllieMillerRD and save at your checkout. All right. So let's get back into it. And let's talk about the plant paradox and Dr. Gundry and kind of what his whole deal is and whether this has any validity. I know this has been really popularized, like Kelly Clarkson just lost 30 or 40 pounds following his protocol. And I've got a lot of clients kind of buzzing about the plant paradox. So what's it all about? Right. And so like, for instance, you know, lectins, I'll get, I'll get hit if I'm doing, um, zoodles, right? Uh, Like with like a bolognese type deal and it's very keto friendly, but people be like, what about, what about the lectins in there? So, so Dr. Uh, Gundry, and I, and I'm really pleased that he's bringing this conversation to the table. I think that there's a lot of highlights um, and I think that there's a lot of helpful information, but with anything, we don't have to take an all or nothing approach. We have to understand what does this mean for my body? Again, how can I mitigate the influence to still get the cost to benefit ratio working in my favor? And based on your stress, based on your gut integrity, your enzyme and stomach acid is going to include how tight you have to follow this type of a protocol. 
Um, so that's my little like pre-entry. But Dr. Gundry, we pulled from his website because I don't want to misquote. Um, this is uh, his statement. Plants don't want to be eaten. They simply want to survive. One of the ways they defend themselves against hungry animals like us is by providing toxic chemical compounds, proteins known as lectins. Maybe you've heard of gluten. It's one of the best-known lectins around, but it's not the only one. In fact, lots of healthy foods, he has healthy in quotes, lots of healthy foods we've been trained to eat for centuries contain dangerous lectins, including vegetables, especially nightshades, seeds, beans and legumes, traditional dairy products, grain-fed and farm-raised animal proteins. Okay, so some of that we honestly be on board with. And we'll, we'll talk about that kind of where we are similar and where we might differ. But I mean, Dr. Gundry is, he's a former cardiovascular surgeon and he is, you know, in with the IFM. I think he's, you know, well educated and, and has a lot of research on his side. He's done a ton of research into the microbiome as well. So I think, you know, he's got a good entry point into this. I think where things kind of go awry is like taking this a little too far where it's like, Maybe you didn't even read the book and you are assuming all plants are bad, right? <laughs> right, right. And, you know, again, it's interesting because I just read this quote now and I'm like, oh, that's like exactly what I said, that plants can't run from their... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> from the predators. So I think totally we have we have a kindred spirit overlap in a lot of our approaches. And, you know, um, when we'll start to dig into, well, let's just do that now. As far as the yes and no foods, I think that we have a big overlap in what the naturally nourished diet includes for sure as well. Yes. So a lot of the yes foods, I mean, most of our non-starchy veggies with the aside of some of the nightshades are on his list, like Brussels, cauliflower, broccoli are all a go, which is amazing. Um, And he's talking a lot about sourcing and um, ensuring pasture raised, you know, poultry and um, beef and pork. Grass-fed, yeah, which we're all on. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And then he is allowing for some resistant starches, you know, like um, plantains and sweet potatoes and things of that nature. So, so far so good, right? Um, Yeah, I think the one thing on his yes list that I'm not down with is the plant-based meats. I think, you know, he felt probably he needed to offer an option, but, uh, and he did choose, well, like we say, he did choose to do the uh, fermented, generally speaking, forms of a lot of these things, like tempeh instead of instead of tofu. Um, but there is one hemp tofu noted. I don't know anything about that product, honestly. Um, but so that's probably the area I'd say, nah, just, just eat real food, just eat meat, um, as as that world. (laughs) Yeah. But his, his yes list is pretty extensive and I don't think it's got anything else that I'd consider to be harmful on there. I mean, the other area of his yes food as I'm cruising and looking at it. So olives, great dark chocolate, 72% or greater, totally on board with that herb seasonings, yada, yada, yada. But what I'm not stoked to see is of course the non-caloric sweeteners listed. I don't even need to open that bag of worms in this episode, but yeah, so he has a list of sweeteners, including, you know, from stevia to xylitol to inulin to monk fruit and erythritol. Those would not be on my yes list. Um, let's see anything else that pops out at you, Becky, on the yes list to call out as an incongruency with our clinic approach. I think anything it's else pretty well, pretty on good. Par. Yep. So it's essentially like a, a primal looking list. I have seen, and I will say just to to note, cassava, um, which 
you know, is like in like Siete brand tortillas and such. That's one of those when we're doing an elimination diet, we really treat that as an outlier because, you know, it is a yes, resistant starch. But I have seen personally, and also in a lot of, especially kiddos that we're working with elimination diets, some digestive distress. Yeah, um, so that's one that I usually, huh? Constipation for sure. For yes. Kusava. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it, it would still be on my yes list. Like it's a, it's an acceptable option, far superior over a corn tortilla, of course, or a flour tortilla. Uh, but, but one that I would do more as like a intermittent, uh, accent to the diet versus a staple. Sure. Okay. And then on his no list, I think Honestly, we're on board with a lot of this. So he's got a whole mass of grains listed as a no, um, you know, yeah. oils, corn like, syrup, yeah, yeah. oils like soybean oil and um, refined starchy foods like pasta, rice, potato chips, things like that. Um, the the vegetables is the area where we would say, well, where are you at with your gut protocol, right? right. So he has, you know, pumpkin, squashes, of course, all the nightshades that we mentioned. So the tomatoes, bell peppers, uh, all peppers, goji berries, which have that that solanine in there as well. Uh, he has a list of like sugar snap peas and then most legumes in there. I would definitely agree with the textured vegetable protein and soy protein isolates to be as a no food. But most of those vegetables we would allow, but we might do, and we'll get there, a little reset before we would allow it if you're dealing with GI distress. So there's rhyme and reason to using this no list as a as a kind of a wringing out of the inflammatory processes in the gut. Sure. And then some of the nuts and seeds that he has listed as no's like pumpkin, sunflower, chia, peanut, and cashew, I think are also things that we would allow depending on, again, where the person is at with digestion. Yep. But other than that, I don't think we're all that different, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So what would you say, Allie, are kind of biggest concerns that you're seeing with this approach? Yeah. So, I mean, the the big thing again is this like strict dogmatic and maybe not time specific, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So approach to if you're doing this for life, you may miss out on beneficial phyto compounds or plant-based anti-nutrients from particular foods of focus. Uh, So my goal would be using this as like a cyclical entry point that you can do to reset the gut inflammation and, you know, then really with like a reintroduction approach, see your tolerance, especially of some of those otherwise health supporting foods like chia seed, which might be a really great fiber for a keto diet because we know every tablespoon gives 10 grams of fiber or excuse me, 10 grams of carbs with nine grams of fiber, right? So it's like pretty much a freebie and a great fiber boost to your body. Um, so I think that the biggest concern would be just that it is strict and dogmatic and it should be cycled versus done as a lifestyle. Sure. And I think there is an element of, of fear that I've at least seen in my clients who've read this book and started to follow this approach where we'll be meal planning. And I'll say something like, okay, let's add spinach here. They're like, no oxalates. And then I say, okay, let's add in zucchini noodles. And it's like, no, the lectins. And I'm like, are you actually sensitive to these things? Like, is is it an observed sensitivity in your body or is it just kind of this fear mongering around these like buzzwords, right? Right. Because you could say, yes, lutein. Exactly. (laughs) Manganese. (laughs) So there's a, right, there's that double-edged sword effect. And um, I think the biggest thing to really be mindful of, again, is 
this whole idea, I, I always come back to doctrine creates disconnect, right? So if you're following rules blindly, you're not going to have a good time. You're not going to heal your body if you're following any plan blindly. You have to connect back to your body and you have to think through some of the processes like we discussed, soaking and sprouting. Fermentation is another great way that we can bring down a lot of anti-nutrients. And you know, a lot of those foods, um, like I said, tempeh over tofu, of course, um, using acids, like all, to, all the times that you use your spinach, I don't recommend raw spinach in a green smoothie for the reason of oxolic acid, but sauteing down spinach and using lemon, right? And olive oil and garlic is definitely going to have more of a, a reduction of those oxalates and, and make them less concerning and less quote unquote harmful. Sure. So there's tons of ways, you know, smoothies, soups, purees. Um, I know Dr. Grundry is a big fan of the use of a pressure cooker. If you are consuming some of those lectin containing compounds or lectin containing foods, because that helps to reduce them as well. Totally. Okay. And then what about individuals who do find they have increased sensitivity overall to vegetables, like driving GI bloating and distension? I know I've seen posts on Instagram of people who've been keto carnivore, and then they like eat broccoli and look six months pregnant. Like yeah. what's, what's actually going on there and what, where do we need to dig deeper? So it could be a couple things, right? So it could be dysbiosis where they have unfavorable gut bacteria strains or yeast, uh, and, and this drives fermentation. And so when you take out those prebiotic fibers and you go to an all meat diet, you can start to, in some sense, starve off the gut bacteria. But as we've seen in research, the microbiome is very resilient. And often, like we've seen that dysbiosis and candida can feed off of ketones as opposed to glucose, right? So you may get less activity, but you're not necessarily getting resolution. And so when they do then have a fibrous food, they get this huge flare-like response, right? So they're like provoking the beast, if you will. Um, so I always recommend that, you know, especially in these tend to be seen with the cruciferous, not the lectin-based foods, but more of the cruciferous gases, um, like cauliflower, broccoli, Brussels, these tend to be very problematic but really anything with prebiotic fiber, like asparagus would be in that family, right? Or um, looking at onions and garlic. So my recommendation is for those individuals, when you if you're going keto carnivore, and that can be a great tool, do the probiotic challenge in your process and see with the probiotic challenge, is your gut in a dysbiotic state? Um, in that sense, go forward with my six-week beat the bloat cleanse. Use that candida cleanse bundle, which works both for dysbiosis or candida, right, to actually plow the microbiome and reset it. Or if you notice with the probiotic challenge that you get improved outcomes as you go up the spectrum, then maybe you're just dealing with sterility and you don't have enough gut biomes to help your body. Because remember, your positive strains of gut flora help the digestive process by actually breaking down food. So maybe it's because you're dealing with slow motility and the bloating because you don't have the good bugs to eat the stuffs, right? So maybe then you just need to work with rebounding your microbiome and doing like the targeted strength probiotic, which is 60 billion instead of the restore, which is 15 billion. And maybe you need the spectrum piled on there. And maybe you play um, adding in slowly after a couple weeks of the good probiotics into phytofiber, and then start to repollinate with these um, antioxidant-rich vegetables to see your tolerance. Okay. And I'll link to that probiotic challenge as well as our Beat the Bloat 
ebook and cleanse in our show notes. But um, would that individual then, you know, would that be a case for trying on something like keto carnivore in the short term if we're dealing with really resistant or severe dysbiosis that's like not responding to anything else? Yeah. And I think even broader for digestive distress, right? Like, you know, so if you're dealing with digestive distress and maybe you assign that it's not dysbiosis because you do the probiotic challenge, you pass, you're improving, you're taking your, your, you know, higher potent formulas. Great. Things are improving, but then you're still not tolerating a lot of diversity in the diet, you know, and you're really only tolerating, like I'm talking like super keto carnivore, like steak and maybe fish or steak and, you know, dark, poultry. A lot of people that do keto keto carnivore only eat red meat actually, you know? So if you're just tolerating such a limited intake of single ingredients, then I would go down that world of leaky gut, right? So anytime you have any of these anti-nutrients, they're extremely distressing to your gut lining. So you get an inflammatory influence. So that bloating and distension, it can be osmotic, which would mean water mediated, right? And that's going to be an inflammatory immune influence, or it can be dysbiotic by a fermentation gas bloat. So if you realize that it's not dysbiosis, then it might be more food specific. You might at that time, definitely I would say proactively work your leaky gut by upping your bone broth consumption. I would highly recommend the GI lining support product, which has uh, L-glutamine, which actually repairs the um, enterocytes. So those gut cells, that epithelial lining. The GI lining also has aloe and DGL, which repairs ulcerations and wear and tear. So you could start doing a scoop of that at rise and at bed for about four weeks. And then you might try to slowly reintroduce vegetables like one every couple days. And if not cost prohibitive, you might even go down into the world of the MRT test, which will look at 180 foods and chemicals and what specifically drives inflammation in your body. And then you can use that as like a GPS to allow you to get abundance of the foods that are non-reactive and have that data of what you need to keep out longer through your gut repair process. Okay. And then beyond that, we talked a little bit about lack of sufficient stomach acid or digestive enzymes and how that could be driven by even something like stress. Absolutely. So, uh, Regardless, if you're not tolerating food, and I honestly just believe everyone, you and I are huge proponents of digesting, but if (laughs) you have any digest, yeah, I mean, it's like all the time, obviously when we're dining out because of that DPP-4, which breaks down gluten and dairy, uh, but digestate is going to give you the hydrochloric acid. It has ox bile in there, which helps you to emulsify and break things down. It has enzymes um, to break down uh, your vegetable fibers. So it has um, cellulases and hemicellulase to break down the cellulose. Uh, it is going to break down carbs, protein, and fat with like your proteases and your lipase. So that's going to put the compounds into your gut, um, into the stomach, you know, as a cauldron to be in the optimized environment to break down the foods that then meet it, right? So that's going to help you not only with nutrient absorption, but also less digestive distress and smaller particles. So you're not going to get as much irritation or drive towards that, that leaky gut, if you will. And then that GI lining would be the other big recommendation to line and protect the gut from those irritants. 
Okay. And then, you know, hopefully on down the line, having used those compounds and kind of slowly reintroduced, we could get to a more broad, you know, diverse diet state for sure. Um, what about just to kind of wrap this all up, um, the whole bioavailability argument. And I know this is one that a lot of people who advocate for a strict keto carnivore, you know, long-term bring up. Absolutely. And I'm 100% on board with the fact that the majority of nutrients are going to be significantly higher in animal product and more bioavailable, right, than, than in the plant compound. And we talk a lot about this in episode 42. So just, you know, very briefly, if we're going through nutrient density and we're comparing, you know, a, a plant to something like beef and then an organ, which is going to be even more concentrated in most nutrients, um, it's just it's just not even comparable, right? So when we're looking at things like vitamin A, that can be 12 to 24 times more bioavailable. When we're talking about all of your B vitamins, you'll hear vegetarians fight that, you know, B vitamins are great in grains and and um, in your beans again, and your nuts and seeds, well, or leafy greens, but B1, B2, B3, B6, significantly higher in animal foods and B12 only found in animal foods, right? Um, The area where we do see higher amounts of nutrient density in plants is vitamin C, and that's kind of a non-debatable one. We also see higher amounts of vitamin K predominantly in your leafy greens, right? And that's K1, you know, Um, and then we will see higher amounts, generally speaking, of folate. Um, But there is a good amount of folate in liver as well, I would say, and then um, we can see in um, iodine um, a good amount of uh, in our sea vegetables, but we do see iodine in our seafood as well. And then we will see higher ALA, which is the precursor to EPA, DHA, but EPA and DHA, which these are omega-3s, right? The ALA is actually the grasses that that grass-fed cow eats to give us the conjugated linoleic acids, the CLA, or the ALA is the algae that the fish eats to make the EPA, DHA. So yes, there is a higher amount of that precursor omega-3, but you're getting a more potent punch of the um, omega-3 fatty acid once the animal has metabolized that and converted into the active compounds through the liver and its kidneys. Sure. And I think the big takeaway here is eat a real food-based nutrient-dense diet that includes variety of both, you know, well-sourced animal products and plant products on rotation for sure. Um, And you'll be in good shape, right? Yeah. (laughs) You know, and and, and again, it's ask yourself why, because it's this whole thing of if you're not tolerating things, the body is trying to tell you something. So use the diet to help heal your body and heal the why you're not tolerating, right? Use targeted nutritional supplemental therapy to work the process on a functional level to repair leaky gut, to reset the microbiome, and then get that diversity um, and support the tolerance with enzyme activity. And, you know, maybe, for instance, if it's a high-stress day, maybe your lunch looks, you know, more keto carnivore because maybe you're not making as many enzymes. And then at your dinner time after you gone for a walk and you've de-stressed, that's when you can have, you know, delicious recipes like uh, that are on our blog and and the Naturally Nourished Cookbook and to come anti-anxiety diet cookbook, you know, like the whole roasted cauliflower or butternut and Brussels breakfast hash or braised collards with bacon. So I hope (laughs) that today's episode has given you a good understanding of both why vegetables might not be working well for you 
And the significance of why you may want to work with your body to improve your tolerance of vegetables, both for the potentiality of a better web of nutrient density, getting some of those unique plant-based antioxidants, but also variety, I think, in flavor um, and texture and, and making this a sustainable food as medicine approach. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.